At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code SOSMART at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 56. They may not all realize it, but when it comes to cognitive biases, errors in attention, overconfidence, and all the other loopholes in our minds that have been around since we've had brains, magicians have an intimate knowledge of those concepts. Before we had names for them or a science to study them, the people who could claim the most expertise on that side of human reasoning were scam artists, con artists, and magicians. In this show, this project, it owes a whole lot to the magic profession. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever actually went through this on the show, but the way You Are Not So Smart began, and here's the short version of the story, was I was browsing the web years ago and came across a YouTube video that was a clip from a Darren Brown TV special. Darren Brown is a magician. He's actually a specialized version of magician called a mentalist. So his tricks and his performances are all about messing with people's perceptions and basically boggling their minds in a very intimate way that feels creepy and it's not as flashy or showy as a stage show. It doesn't really often involve a lot of, uh, you know, scarves and rabbits and uh, cards and that kind of... That's, anyway, anyway, in the clip, Darren Brown asked people walking around in a city for directions to certain landmarks. Right as the person began to explain to him where to go and started to point, two men carrying a large frame portrait then rudely passed between Brown and the direction giver. As they passed, Brown then quickly switched places with one of the people carrying the portrait, which, by the way, was a portrait of Darren Brown. He could easily switch out because the carriers were on his side and not on the other person's as they passed. After they walked past, there was now a completely new person standing there, and the people giving directions just kept explaining. They kept giving directions like nothing had happened. Darren Brown was gone. It's someone else in his place. And they didn't notice there was a completely different person standing in front of them. It it was crazy to me. In the clip, they even switched out people 
of different skin colors, different genders, and nobody noticed. This just blew me away so much. I could not believe it was true. I thought there's no way that I wouldn't notice. But I was also kind of excited by the idea by the idea that, well, maybe, maybe I would be tricked by this. Maybe there was evidence here of a universal weakness of the human brain, something that showed how misplaced our overconfidence and self-praise really is. And I just had to understand how that was possible. When I researched it, I discovered the brown trick, like so many of his stunts, was based on psychological research. This one was based on change blindness. It's a psychological phenomenon. It's well understood now. And the real research that was done to reveal this showed that not everyone is fooled in a scenario like this. More like 30% of people don't notice, which is still an astonishing number. And you can raise that number by manipulating the scenario just a little bit. The scientist behind that research was Daniel Simons. He was on the first episode of this show. And if you go looking for Darren Brown's person swap, please also go watch a more scientific version that was recreated by Simons himself, which he did for the show Nova some time back. If you're looking for it on YouTube, it's called Inside Nova Change Blindness. So that research revealed to me a whole side of psychology devoted to learning just how deluded, flawed, and not so smart we really are. And Change Blindness was the first post on the blog and... You know, here we are. So who do I have to thank? Well, very, very much. It's it's Darren Brown, one of the many people in the world of magic and mentalism who plays with our mental weaknesses and entertains us by revealing how blind we can be to those things. I love the idea that psychology and neuroscience may have just now started exploring this side of us. But magicians, scammers, and con artists have been exploring it for centuries and have always had a more accurate, dispassionate, realistic, and robust knowledge of human cognitive shortcomings than the rest of us. That's probably why there's just so many magicians in the skeptic community and in science outreach communities. I'm sure that's why it is. Penn and Teller, The Amazing Randy, and our guest today, Brian Brushwood. My hypothesis is that I think once you know the truth, you just can't go back. And magicians know the truth about how we really think. They have a sort of head start on that kind of humility. The humility you get when you start to see how people really, 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 truly work. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we're having a conversation with Brian Brushwood, the creator of Scam School, a series of videos showing you how hundreds of scams actually work and teaching you how to use them for good, how to entertain friends and score free drinks in bars, and how to protect yourself from scams. He also does lectures about scams and paranormal beliefs, and he has a new show on Nat Geo called Hacking the System. You will hear all he has to say about scams and the minds of magicians after this break. If you're a fan of the show, then you are definitely going to be a fan of The Great Courses. I love it so much. It's a company that makes lectures and they put them in this long series of lectures and all the lectures together teach you something about something you ought to know about. The one that I am listening to right now again, second time, is Your Deceptive Mind, a scientific guide to critical thinking taught by Dr. Stephen Novella, professor of neurology at Yale, a former guest on the show. 
I've sat with him on a panel talking about conspiracy theories at Dragon Con, host of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, an all-around crusader for thinking about thinking. His lecture series is a fascinating look at metacognition, how our brains work to process information and misinformation, and how all that shapes our thought processes. With powerful practical tools, he teaches you how to become a stronger critical thinker in both your personal and your professional life. The Greek course is 25 years old, 500 courses at this point on a variety of subjects, science, history, and more. And you can listen to the great courses with a download, stream it over an app, watch it on a DVD, or listen to it on a CD. It's great. And I want you to check it out. And for a limited time, they have a special offer for my listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling courses, including this one, Your Deceptive Mind, at 80% off the original price. It's only for a limited time, though, so you have to hurry. To order your deceptive mind with my special offer from The Great Courses, you must go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's thegreatcourses.com slash smart. And now, back to the show. Brian Brushwood has been touring the country, the nation, the world for years doing his special blend of magic, mentalism, and sort of a punk rock magician style kind of way. And he's also moved into the world of educating people about scams and the way people are sort of uh, seduced by the paranormal and belief and all sorts of strange things like, you know, psychics and uh, Bigfoot and aliens and crop circles and all that sort of stuff. He goes around the world showing people why people believe those things, why it persists, and how you can avoid getting scammed. Here's a little clip from his lecture that he does on college campuses called Scams, Sasquatch, and the Supernatural. ...has walked away disappointed. But nobody believes in ESP because of some freaking study who says that ESP exists. People believe in ESP, why? Because they had some kind of phenomenal experience that they just can't explain, right? How many of you guys have had that where uh, maybe you, 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 you want to call your friend, so you walk over to the phone, you pick up the phone, and there's no dial tone because they're already on the line? How many of you guys have had that? Ooh. How many of you guys have had that where you're thinking of a song, and then you're humming the tune, you get in your car, you turn on the key, and not only is that exact song playing, but it's at the exact part where you were when you got in the car. How many of you guys have had that? Yeah. Could it be coincidence? Maybe. Maybe not. I tell you what, let's go ahead and ask this. Uh, the thing is, when it comes to this, I want you to realize that very few people outside of mathematicians have a good intuitive understanding of probability. Probability is one of those things that is very hard to get a good, correct grasp of. And keep in mind that the odds of one coincidence, for example, uh, the odds that tomorrow afternoon at 2.15 p.m., I'll get into my Jeep Grand Cherokee here in uh, Arkansas, I'll turn on the radio, and it will be exactly halfway through the Humpty Dance from 1988. The odds of that are very, very low. But the odds that sooner or later, there's going to be some kind of coincidence that's absolutely amazing, the odds of that are actually very high. And we can test this. Let's go ahead and try this out. How many of you guys would be surprised if just in the first five or six rows, two people here had the same birthday? Would you be, would you be surprised? A little bit surprised? Like, I tell you what, let's find out. How many people? We got maybe, maybe 25 people here or so. I tell you what, we'll go ahead. If you hear your birthday, we'll go ahead and call it birthdays. If you hear your birthday, raise your hand. Just stand up real quick. Mine's January 17th. What's yours? September 9th. September 19th. September 19th. 19th. Look at that. (laughs) 
Oh, you're 19th. You said, wait, you're 19, you're 19, and you're 19. That's weird. So, so what are the odds? Ooh, what are the odds, right? Well, let's go ahead and ask. What are the odds? People think of our intuitive understanding of probability would say if you got 23 people, there are 365 days in a year, 366 if you want to count a leap year. And uh, so the odds are 23 out of 365, right? And if you got 35 people, then the odds must be 35 out of 365. It's amazing. The actual odds for two people in a group of 23 are 50%. And when you go to 35, it jumps to 85%. When you go to 42, it jumps over 90%. It's amazing. And so, and so this is a case of your intuitive understanding being wrong. Let's do another one. Who wants to help me with a little I idea here? I love uh, it so much. Uh, Brian is doing so many things right now. Our guest today, Brian Brushwood, is the host of Hacking the System over at National Geographic. He's also the host of Scam School, where he teaches you all sorts of social engineering stuff that you can do in bars and other intimate situations using scams and magic and principles of psychology. He's the host of a couple different podcasts or co-host, Weird Things Podcast, Night Attack, and Cord Killers. He's appeared on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, CNN, Food Network. Uh, he's, done, he's done all sorts of stuff. He's done a lot of stage shows where he eats fire and does other kinds of crazy, um, weird punk rock road show magic stuff also mixed in with the more heady stuff like what you hear in that thing. And he's also very active in the skeptic community where uh, people get together and talk about how to not be big old dummies. So without any more introduction, here is uh, Brian Brushwood. Let's pick his brain. Ryan, um, how are you? <laughs> Holt cow. I've made a terrible mistake, David. <laughs> I, I should never remind me to never, ever become a fan of a show before I come on it again, because if we had done this six months ago, it would be totally smooth. I wouldn't care. It'd be easy. But instead, I'm awkwardly running through cookie recipes in my mind <laughs> trying to figure out how to make you happy. I, I just made we still have a, a refrigerator full of bourbon bacon uh, cookies. <laughs> they are. <laughs> well, now you're just rubbing it into my face. Uh, they're killer. They're killer. Um, what is keeping you uh, busy right now? I, I look around on your website and it looks like you're doing 62 different things at once. You know, that's the whole thinking in the beginning was like, if you want to win the lottery, buy as many different lottery tickets <laughs> as you can. But you don't you don't really think about what happens like, well, what happens if most of them pay off, you know, <laughs> and all of a sudden you find yourself running around, you know, one day you're you're doing a live stage show. The next day you're pretending to host a, a show on National Geographic <laughs> and the next day you're doing your YouTube series. And then the, the next three days you're doing podcasts and talking about patrons. It's uh, it's amazing. It's uh, I, I five years ago, I had a very simple explanation for who I was and what I do. I tour with a stage magic show and occasionally talk on the internet. And nowadays it's gotten a lot trickier and I'm still trying to figure it out myself. Well, what is it? What is this hacking the system? It looks so cool. Is that, is that ongoing? What's happening with that? Uh, yeah, we did. We did a, well, we did uh, two specials last year on national geographic, half an hour. And the idea was, you know, it, it sort of was born from the idea of what are what are all the things you're not supposed to know? And I wrote down an awful lot of stuff that would be wildly inappropriate to put on television. Uh, and National Geographic liked the idea. And, and obviously, you know, because they're responsible adults, they figured out like, well, why don't we tone down? How about we do less on hiding bodies and do 
more on travel tricks. And I was like, okay. And when, so the show became a, a show about life hacking and about, uh, you know, getting the edge, whether it's, you know, how to find the fastest uh, line at the supermarket or talk your way out of a speeding ticket or, you know, uh, 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 what is it every, all the experts know that, that you ought to know? Well, okay. So I'll look at one of them. Um, how do you get out of, how do you get around a no vacancy? Uh, oh, uh, ooh, that's a good question. Uh, well, first of all, everyone says, uh, okay, uh, there's a couple of different rules here. And I, I don't know if you already have an answer in mind for this. Oh, no, no, but, no. I, I just saw that your episode had a, mentioned it, so. Oh, sure. Uh, well, uh, well uh, uh, some of it is on travel stuff, but, but something I learned recently while we were shooting on this is that I, I believe, and someone can correct me because I know we have a, uh, an intelligent audience listening, uh, I believe that one of the things people don't factor in is that once you get into a hotel, I believe in many places, it is illegal for them to kick you out the next night beyond your reservation. So you can, ahead of a big convention or whatever, uh, you can get in and they cannot kick you out, uh, no matter how popular it is. And now they can charge you the maximum rate, which is posted in your room. Cause you ever notice they've got, you know, most hotels have like a ridiculously high maximum rate that they can charge. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. is in the event that you move in and refuse to move out. So next time, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to mention a specific convention, uh, Dragon Con, but I'm just saying that it might be pretty good for, for someone in that situation. <laughs> uh, that's great. And you also talk about like waiting in line and how to do interviews and job interviews and yeah. just, you know, you know, what's interesting is there's some stuff that, that we had to play coy around. And, uh, and I suppose now that the series is out, I can, I, you know, I, I don't think they can, you know, do anything to me now, but, um, like the, the real hidden gems, we had to kind of dance around saying, because for example, uh, on the whole getting uh, skipping a line thing, you, you go to the, uh, airlines and you know, let's say there's a line wound around the block for, and then there's no line for the first class section. Uh, if you, you can walk straight up to that first class section and ask the question, hi, how much is it for me to upgrade my flight to first class? And they will come back and say, that will be $1,200. You're like, hmm, that won't work for me. Uh, I don't quite have that. I wanted to make my daughter's birthday or whatever. What else can you do? And then they say, well, we can move you over to this area or that area. Uh, you know, we, we could get you in the uh, emergency row. You'll have a little bit more leg room. You want to do that? And you're like, yeah, that would be great. And uh, we, we presented it as just a trick to, you know, get a better seat. But the real trick, the thing that I wanted to highlight neon and that wisely, <laughs> uh, you know, the network decided not to make a big deal about is to me, the real trick is you can skip that giant line by and have genuine legitimate business by walking straight up to the first class, even though you're not a first class customer and just ask how much would it cost to upgrade to first class? <laughs> and now you legitimately have skipped the line. Right. And see, that's what, okay. So this is what I love about uh, all your stuff. And it's, you know, I feel like there's, um, there's sort of this, there's like a, an attitude among magicians and uh, people who do sort of the um, social engineering type stage work that you do. And, you know, you've got it, Penn and Teller have it, people like David Blaine, James Randi, all those people have it. And it's not like, it's not this stage swagger, like David Copperfield or Chris Angel, not to dis, not to diss on those people, but it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an everyday sort of, confidence that's really unique to magicians that they seem to take in, in, into their interviews and their conversations and their dealing with the public. And, and it speaks to sort of this deep understanding of uh, how we're all kind of locked into patterns and we're locked into, we, we sort of uh, are on autopilot and how easy it is to be fooled when you're in that 
state of mind and how easy it is to be hornswoggled, not just by other people, but yourself too. Is that something that you have noticed as you've grown as an artist in this way and among the other people you sort of schmooze with in that world? Yeah, well, it, what's funny is, uh, and, and, and I, I hadn't really paused to think about it until this moment, but but I think I think you're right in that what happens when you do a magic trick is that you realize that what you need, the end goal is I need their eyes to match my eyes so that my fingers can do this move. And you start to learn little things like, oh, if I turn my chest towards them, if I look up into their eyes, if I ask them a meaningful question, if I half smile while I say this, if I make a joke about the Texas Aggies or whatever, all of these things, they're none, none of them are 100%, but each one helps to nudge the needle in your favor. And so that you get your goal, you get that, uh, essentially, I don't want to call it mind control, but, but, but certainly you create a situation conducive to people uh, looking at the right place at the right time. And I think, uh, you know, even now talking to you, I could feel myself entering that state. You know, I'm sitting up straight in my chair. I'm gesturing with my hands. I'm doing my best to speak in visual terms and, and punchy statements that get across things exactly. But on the inside, I'm also terrified because I'm intimidated because I'm excited to be here and <laughs> hope I do well. Uh, but I think that magicians do, much like actors, uh, have... They, they, they realize that there's a way to enter a headspace that, um, that, that works whether you're on stage or off stage. And there's enough things like, for example, one of the big things we talk about on hacking the system is when you get pulled over for a, a speeding ticket. Now, obviously, there's a million different factors that go into how one particular police officer is feeling at, you know, at any particular day. But in general, you know, if I get pulled over for speeding, it's something like five or 10 miles over the speed limit. And so I realized that the number one thing that I want to do is make the cop comfortable. My goal, and this is not my idea, this comes from the fantastic magician, Mike Super. Uh, Mike Super was the one who made me realize uh, these cops, they pull people over, they cry, they whine, they, 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 they act nervous, and that puts them on edge. Why don't you do the opposite of that, about all that? Why don't you make them comfortable and get them laughing? And it started me off with the idea, like, I've never made a cop laugh and then had him write me a ticket when it was under his discretion to not to. So, um, so in this case, you know, what I'll do is I'll pull over and I have, I have this amazingly ridiculous driver's license photo with a, where I'm grinning like an idiot and I've got crazy punked out here. And that often gets them to chuckle. But if they don't, they'll ask for insurance or whatever. And I'll say, uh, I say, well, officer, this is a rental car. Uh, I don't have my insurance on me, but I'm told this will help. And then pull out of my wallet, a get out of jail free card from a monopoly deck or something. <laughs> Uh, and so, and, and again, it doesn't have to be a good joke, but, but what I'm really communicating is I am not threatened by this situation. I have nothing to hide. I am not worried. I hope that you have a good day and enjoy your time with me. And, and, and in some way that seems to short circuit the regular interaction with the police officer, or at least did until I gave away the secret right now, live on the, <laughs> oh, this is one of the things that I, when I, when I emailed you, uh, I was thinking this has been in my head for a while and you can't help but notice if you go to like Dragon Con and you go to the skeptic track, if you, uh, keep up with like the people in that community or the, the amazing meeting, all that kind of stuff. Um, there's so many magicians in that world, the world of like people devoted to organizations that do, that think about critical thinking a lot. Um, and it, it feels like if you, I, I have this suspicion that, you know, you look in neuroscience and psychology and they'll um, start to hone in on something like, um, you know, the human eye only really can 
get this uh, high resolution right in the very center of our vision, and then it gets very, very, very crappy as you go out to the ed- toward the edges, way crappier than you would expect. Or, um, you know, we blink all day long, and we also do those saccades where you move your eyes back and forth very quickly, and all your brain deletes every bit of that from your conscious experience. And so you end up with hours deleted from your day uh, that you don't even realize are, are missing at all. And all the stuff I've written about and talked about on the show for a while, it, it all kind of boils down to we're bad at certain ways of thinking or, and we're not great at perceiving the world around us in, in, in all sorts of different ways. But it's not that that's the, that's not really the problem. The problem is that we don't know those things are true and we don't really realize that those things could be bad. And it's the, the worst part of it is that on top of that, we seem very confident that we do know uh, all these things, or we would know if things were missing, or we would we would catch ourselves if we were making mistakes. And it seems to me that magicians and people who do social engineering and con artists and scam artists and all the people from that world going way, way, way back completely understand that. Like they've Absolutely. they're totally in on, on, on the on the secret, and it gives them a tremendous give them given them a tremendous edge over the years. And and uh, I just wondered if that's you see that it's the same thing. Is that is that am I on the right path there? Oh oh my gosh yes. Uh, well, and first of all, understand that uh, that I am very very fortunate uh, to you know uh, come up as a magician. You know now in 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 the early twenty first century, uh, magicians have a legitimate legitimacy in fooling people that they did not have, you know, 40 years ago when the amazing Randy first put his money where his mouth is. You know, it, it's if if a magician is respected in any kind of scientific situation, it's because of James Randy, it's because of the work of Penn and Teller that that there's even considered to be a place for uh, somebody to uh, essentially say, well, if you were going to try to pull a hoax, here's all the ways you would do it. If you were going to try to scam and lie and cheat and say you could move objects with your mind, you know, these are the places I would hide the invisible thread. Um, but uh, ha- having said all of that, it's interesting uh, because I'll talk to some magicians involved in the skeptic movement uh, who, who uh, I think it's very, very tempting for magicians. I, I think, number one, it's very flattering that magicians have a seat at the skeptic table. I think it's very important that magicians have a seat at the skeptic table. Uh, and I'm very honored that, that we are included in this work. Um, I think among some magicians, it's tempting to believe as a result of them having a seat at the skeptic table, that their work is capital I important. Mm. And, uh, and I don't think that's the case. I think it is important what we did and where we come from, but I think in the realm, in a world where we're now reading books like, you know, Thinking Fast and Slow, you know, by Daniel Kahneman, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that magicians are the folk artists of these cognitive illusions. I think that we are not the folks realizing how genetics works. We are the farmers who just have an intuitive understanding of the forces that we play with. I think that our goal is, you know, I don't know exactly how it works, but I know that when I do this, they don't notice that I'm doing that. I, I, I notice that if, when I make, when I say this, it gets a laugh and, and we are, we are going forward with it. So I think we have a contribution, but I think, uh, you know, in a world where people are getting into fMRIs, and experiencing, you know, these cognitive illusions that we manufacture when we do magic, uh, and and other people, you know, do so through, you know, fraud. 
I think that it's important that we not that we not overplay our hand. But but yes, I mean, you're 100 percent right when you say that oftentimes what, you know, is astonishing to other people. Magicians are like, duh, (laughs) yeah, it's called lying. That's what we do. (laughs) Yeah. And and it seems so natural for for a magician to be like to totally be like, no, no, no. Psychics, that's not real. Astrology, that's not real. Bigfoot, that's not real. (laughs) Because you're, you're so clued into how easily people fool themselves because well, well, specifically here's the thing is I don't think we have as magicians much better of a BS detector than anyone else. Hmm. I think that the difference is once we read some evidence that suggests that we might've been fooled, we are quicker to give up ah, and okay. say like, Oh, Oh, Oh no, I get it. I just got fooled. Yeah, no, I've been here before. And I'm, and you're willing to just give up entire, you know, swaths, you know, in the, in the early days, you know, of, 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 of climate change, you know, it's like, there were really, you know, there seemed to be very compelling cases made on both sides or whatever. But now we're in a place where, you know, at least on the uh, assessment side, it, it looks like it's fairly uh, settled and clear where we are. And it's like, oh, oh, I get it. I was fooled. Uh, well, now what? And, uh, you know, so but now there's a, there's this exciting new discussion about, you know, well, you know, is it better off to try to prevent this or to, you know, uh, I don't know, do a barge. You know, you hear I love all these harebrained schemes to fix climate change, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, putting a, a giant cloud that reflects 10 percent of the uh, <laughs> of the sunlight uh, off the, of the off the planet. All it, the more science fiction it sounds, the more I get excited to read about it. Well, that's that's really interesting because. Um... I, I love the idea that farmers, uh, instead of, uh, instead of geneticists, that's, <laughs> I dig that well, idea because they're both doing the same thing in some regards, right? It's just that one has to very slowly learn it over, uh, over season after season after season, or in the case of magicians, performance after performance after performance. And he may never, he may never know about, you know, the difference between alleles and, and dominant and recessive genes mm-hmm. and so on. But yet he will, you know, at the end of the day, you know, this guy will provide you with the highest uh, yield crop of anyone in the region because uh, he's tuned into it, and I and I do think magicians do the same thing only in, on the cognitive side of things. That is, that is um, that's the best thing ever. I love it so much, and because because <laughs> you know I I, did, I dabbled in um, I love card magic, and I and when I, in my early twenties I, I learned a couple of the more difficult tricks, and every time I did one of those card tricks correctly, and people just lost their minds, like a restaurant or a party, or, or with one person. Um, I was always astonished at how easy it turned out to be, like how how easy it can be to fool people. Because um, my c- misconception was always that um, people are are a lot more savvy and more alert than uh, than I realized they were. And so to pull off a card trick, I thought would require like this Ricky J level of card control and the sleight of hand. And there's lots of magic that does require that kind of skill, but uh, for the kind of stuff I was doing, it wasn't. And I found that th- the Often the audience or just that single person on the receiving end of a trick like that, it was like they were doing most of the work for me. That's the beautiful part of getting into magic is that uh, the barrier to entry is astonishingly low. Now, understand when you look at somebody like a, like a Ricky Jay, uh, you know, the reason that he is so well regarded is because he's able to do essentially the same trick I could teach you in about 15 minutes, but he can do it with a thousand eyes watching him, <laughs> right. his hands and, 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 and still do it and fool you. Whereas when, but, but of course the reason he's well-regarded and the reason he's worked so hard to get in that point is because he wants to work in an extremely high stakes environment. Whereas if the stakes are as low as try this trick on your friend, you have literally nothing to lose. If your friend busts you halfway through a card trick, so what? You've got nothing to lose. So yes, 
try this ambitious thing, make a joke, look them in the eyes, and then make the move as obvious as you want because you only have one pair of eyeballs and they're not even looking at your hands. And, uh, and it is my hope, and this is certainly you know, the operating idea behind Scam School, is that the, the more practitioners of an art you have, the more competition you have and the better the art does. Um, if you read Freakonomics, they, one of the questions they, they assess is, you know, if drug dealers make so much money, how come so many of them live with their moms? Or if actors are so rich and famous, how come so many of them are serving my coffee? And uh, the answer they came up with is because those are extremely popular genres and they are a tournament, which means anyone can get in, anyone can get started, but only the highest of the highest make it to the point where it becomes super profitable. And uh, if you look at a totally different art, for example, um, you know, in the 1950s, cheap electric guitars became available. And all of a sudden, everyone in suburbia was able to get an electric guitar. <laughs> and they were all able to have a band. In the 1950s, it was just a lot of racket. But 10 years later, you had, you know, uh, the Beatles, you had the Rolling Stones, you had the Who. And uh, the democratization of entry elevated the art because all of a sudden people had to invent new branches. And there are some magicians who, who are not cool with YouTube making it so easy for people to learn magic. But a side effect of it is that we have seen in, in the last 10 years a branching off of a brand new form of magic that is not ever intended to be performed one-on-one -on -one for an audience at a paying gig. Instead, you know, it's, it's essentially this amazing juggling. They call it cardistry where uh, oh, yeah, yeah. people practice in front of their camera and they'll use the best take. And it is exquisite. It's like watching figure skating with cards. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, uh, to me, you know, the democratization of this entry not only is creating a generation of the best artists of magicians that we've ever seen, but it's also democratizing skeptical thinking and the ability to accept the fact that we're all this flawed wetware. Yeah, the flawed wetware thing. You know, the um, you say in, in in some of your lectures, you know, that it's not that people are dumb, it's that we're broken, and we're all kind of broken in a very similar way. But we don't. We just. We just, It's something that it is not intuitive and people don't like to say that they're wrong or they're confused or they don't know what's going on. Well, and I, and I, I think in that regard, being a magician, once you live in a world where your job is to fool everyone. And once you, especially once you start making money, fooling everyone, all of a sudden you have, you have no negative thoughts about being fooled. Being fooled is what your richest clients does by you, you know, by your hands. Mm -hmm. And so once, once you don't feel anything weird about that, once you're able to say, you know, once there's no stigma to being fooled, uh, and, and in fact, that's one of the best things, you know, in a world where Penn and Teller, two of the most talented and well-read magicians on the planet, in, in the history of the planet, in, in a world where they have the, the most popular show on the CW, and that show is literally the smartest, best magicians in the, on the planet being fooled, that right. tells you we can all be fooled and there ain't nothing bad about being fooled. I love that because it, it's in that whatever your entry point into this kind of thinking is the, there's a sweet, um, you know, reward that comes from, it, which is this humility, this really genuine humility about just being a person being, uh, you know, made of meat. And there's certain limitations to what can and can't happen when you're, when you're made of meat. And, um, you go, your, your, uh, your whole series scam school, which everybody should check out. There's lots of it on YouTube. It's so neat. I mean, there's some of them are so simple. Like there's one where you put a quarter on a guy's forehead and you oh, just, sure. you just press in really hard and then you take the quarter off and you, t and they think the quarter is still there and you make them bang their head on the table. That's a, that's a, that's a fantastic example because it points out the, the strength of magic is 
the strength of magic is not in the execution of extremely difficult maneuvers. The strength of magic is in saying the trick begins now when it's already done. So in the case of the quarter on the forehead, what you do, you know, you push really hard on their forehead. And, and if you want to know the secret, you, uh, you uh, wrap your fingernails around the coin as you push so that you push hard on the forehead for about three or four seconds. You pull it away in such a manner that they don't see it as it goes away, but they will appear to still feel it on their forehead. And now you act as though it begins when the trick has already happened. So basically every good magic trick is now we begin and you continue applying your false perceptions or, or your, your false uh, 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 ideas that you went into this with, even though they're no longer appropriate. So if the challenge is to get the coin off of your head without touching it and you believe it's there, <laughs> then you're already screwed. The trick's already over. You're going to come up with, with ridiculous, you're going to be beating your head with your fists and hand, slamming it on the table and so on. And, uh, I, I, you know, again, I feel like uh, in so many ways, the ability, if you want to win a video game and you realize that, um, that you have just wasted the last hour because you're trying to go the wrong direction, you you don't you don't suffer from the sunk cost fallacy as as econ uh, economists call it. You just you're like oh well that's a dead hour. I'm going to go this way because that's the way the level wants. I think that some level of magic understanding allows us to do with that uh, allows us to do that in scientific ideas as well easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love that you know if 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 you're the person causing someone to bang their head on the table, or you are the person who is doing it, like you. It, to me, it feels like I can easily uh, I can easily see the president doing this. I can easily see an MIT super professor doing this. It, it's this uh, absolute um, uh, humility that, that 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 arises inside of you. That you're like, look, I bet everyone would fall prey to this because this is how people work. Well, and, it, the and good it, it helps you, like you know, it helps you. It gives you a better understanding of of our starting positions and why it's so hard to be a person in so many ways. And the good news is that we're already seeing that happen in the generation coming up behind us. You know, uh, I love reading Reddit and seeing how, you know, no matter how strange the phenomenon that they're discussing, the first comment, of course, will be some kind of, you know, dick joke. And then the second comment, uh, most popular comment will be um, a, a link to a Wikipedia article on the various either argumentative flaws or psychological mm -hmm. defects mm -hmm. or, or whatever. We, we are seeing the first generation of human beings in the history of the universe that are growing up with the expectation that that they should not trust their eyes, that they should instead trust uh, the scientific method, which is wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a survival skill. It's a survival skill you have to have now because you can't just you can't trust the internet. <laughs> you have to. Well, and, and that's the funny thing, right? Is we went through a brief period where you know Snopes uh, was was uh, the the salve that we could apply to any of our grandmother's email forward. <laughs> right. But, but now anyone can manufacture their own Snopes, and so instead you have to go for you know some kind of large scale scientific consensus. Right, and people have to are starting to, um, and I've had I've talked to several people about this, and this is something that seems to be uh, I, I can totally see this out there in the zeitgeist that. People are having to rediscover the rules of logic. They're having to rediscover uh, what it means to have an actual argument and not a you know a, a shouting match, but an argument where two people learn from each other. And, and people are having to understand certain things that have to be in our vocabulary, like confirmation bias or survivorship bias, those sort of things, because that's what it takes to navigate 
the insane amount of information that's flowing into our lives every day. And that's just what it takes to be an internet citizen. And it is what it means if you're going to join this weird thing we are all making together. You have to have that level of um, literacy in the ways that people talk and exchange information or, or you're going to end up being, you know, like your grandma. <laughs> yeah, let, let, left behind. Now, the good news is if you are like my grandma or whatever, then there's a very comfortable bubble that you get to live in, you know, right, right. To, uh, to turn on Fox News and hear exactly <laughs> what you expect to hear forever, right? Uh, and, and again, I could say MSNBC, it doesn't matter. But the, uh, uh, the, there's something wonderful. I, I, part of me wants to be feel gypped that it wasn't until age 25, you know, that the internet had advanced to a level that I could have all of my understanding of reality shattered as I realized that the one thing I thought for sure I couldn't be wrong about was my own memory. And instead, that is the first thing I distrust and, and, uh, and nobody trusts because nobody trusts other people's memories. Uh, I, I, man, I, I, I just, I don't know. It's just wonderful to me that we're seeing such a transformation. And I wonder how much, uh, how many advancements we're going to see in the next 20 or 30 years now that we live in the world of the instant fact-checking, now that we live in a world where even charities get graded in an easy-to-read easy format saying, well, here are the criteria that we think are important for a charity. Here's how much your money actually makes it to the good that you're doing. We don't have a dog in the fight what the cause is. We don't really care. And that flips upside down. Growing up, all that mattered was the story. Was the story good, not the efficacy? <laughs> and now that we live in an evidence-based, you know, uh, public good, uh, it's. It, I just couldn't be happier for the future. Well, I don't, before I don't want. We got off on the, like the longest tangent of all time, but I want to. Uh, I want to talk about scams for a minute because um, this is a unique opportunity to talk to someone who knows all about scams. When I um, when I met you at DragonCon last year, uh, I did a presentation about like survivorship bias and arguing, and you did one about. Scams, Sasquatch, and the supernatural, and you've uh, you've done a sort of versions of that lecture uh, around the country, and it's so good. Um, and I, I, I knew when I, I wanted when I had you on the, if I knew if I had a chance to get you on the show, um, I wanted to talk about your deep knowledge of scams and scam artists and con artists and the like. And uh, I really wanted to know what got you, what got you personally interested in that sort of wing of human weirdness. I suppose it's because I understood that, I mean, man, if, I, if I'm going to reduce, let me, I'm, I'm going to say this and it's going to sound dumb, but I want you to understand this is an 18-year-old thinking, right? <laughs> um, an 18-year-old thinks, I like magic. Magic is not cool. Uh, scams are cool, but they're criminal also. <laughs> and, uh, and then, and then uh, to be honest, the biggest transform, uh, transformative moment for me was when I took a class called uh, Pseudoscience and the Paranormal at the University of Texas at Austin, taught by uh, the fantastic uh, Dr. Rory Coker. And it was, um, I did it just to get an easy way of filling my physics requirement. I didn't have to, to take any tests. There was homework that you had to do, but, but there was no physics knowledge. Uh, basically, it was a semester long greatest hits of pseudoscience. The first thing we learned about was astrology. And then, uh, and, and what's amazing is his biggest defense of, of the skeptical position was just to tell the truth 
about where astrology comes from. And it comes from the ignorant belief that, you know, when in a world where you didn't know that the world, that the earth was round, ancient Babylonians, you know, divided up, you know, they noticed that all the, the, the sun, the moon and, and all the planets ran along the ecliptic and they, you know, made up some stories about different, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, constellations and whichever one the sun happened to be at the moment you were born. Well, let's apply those to you. And of course, and, and w somehow telling the truth of where these things come from. When you find out that, um, and I always mix up their name, I want to say Doug Chorley and Dave Bauer, it may be reversed on those last names. But you know, when you find out that these two people in the 1970s just thought it would be a hoot to grab some rope and a two by four and stomp down some, as, you know, as they called it, cereal in the, uh, outside of the pub and make a circle. And then all of a sudden a movement happened because we lived in a uh, inefficient information structure where, you know, the internet didn't make it possible for us to fact check things and stories got picked up based on their strength of narrative, not on the veracity of their truth. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, you have this amazing narrative of UFOs creating crop circles or whatever. It was utterly mind blowing. And, uh, it, it, I, in fact, I love the class so much that I took it a second time, uh, not for a grade, but just to ghost it because I hated the fact that I couldn't remember all the facts of it. I knew the story of it. I knew that, that I was left being very skeptical about these things, but I didn't remember all the facts. So I wanted to get as many as I could. And then flash forward to, uh, five or six years after I'd graduated and I was so full of my touring schedule to colleges that I had these programming boards saying, you know, what else can you do? And I was like, well, bleh, I can give you a lecture about, the greatest hits of skepticism, because that's where the money's at, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and wrote it. Unfortunately, I wrote this lecture, and I was so proud of myself. I just finished, and then uh, Penn and Teller launched their show on Showtime, and I was like, son of a bitch. Oh, yeah, bullshit. <laughs> that's such a good, that show was so, like, at the time it came, like, right now, you know, that would be an amazing time for a show like that, but it came out right before, uh, you know, there was sort of the, um, the incubation chamber, I think, for that kind of show was available on 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 the internet and in the social media. But it was such a great moment for that to come out, and it was, I'm it's, I'm sorry that you were on that thing. Well, well I mean, and and again, because you know, after I wrote it, uh, and again, you know, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. It's not like I did any of the original research, but I knew that uh, there was something to this message, and uh, I wanted to know where it could go. And unfortunately, where it could go was right in the Penn and Teller's pocket. Those <laughs> <laughs> so what, uh, from your perspective, like what, like what is a good, what is a scam? Like what is a scam as a phenomenon? What is it? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, uh, traditionally, you know, scams can mean any kind of intentional frauds and, you know, you don't have to do a fraud or be a fraud in order to understand the techniques of frauds. It could also enclose, um, you know, and capture the pseudosciences and claims of the paranormal. And it would have, you know, magic tricks, but it would be everything from stage magic to close up magic right. to fake mentalism and that stuff. It just seemed like it was a bigger tent that had pretty much everything I'm fascinated with. Okay. So let's talk about some scams. Uh, so like there's, cause, cause like you're saying it, it, it's, it's sort of a, a big umbrella. So there's like, there are like scams like Bigfoot and crop circles, but there's also scams like pyramid schemes and shortchanging people. And so, um, those up close scams that actually cause harm in the world, like, uh, what are some examples and, and, and could you sort of like give us an idea of how they work and what goes into them? Cause there's, uh, things like shortchanging and pyramid schemes and, um, 
I don't, I have no idea what this means, but Spanish prisoner and the pigeon drop, like that kind of stuff. Sure. Sure. Well, well, and I'll tell you the one thing they all have in common is that they rely on the mark having the wrong preconceptions after it begins. The trick is over before it even begins. For example, uh, let's say the lost ring scam. Uh, you're at, you work at a, uh, at a gas station. You see a well-to-do lady come in wearing you know, expensive furs and whatnot, looking all over the place, asking if anyone has turned in a, a, a family heirloom ring. The ring itself is not very valuable, but it has tremendous sentimental value and she's looking for it. No, you haven't seen it. Oh, golly. Well, I'll tell you what. Here's my phone number. If you find it, I will give you uh, $500, no questions asked. Again, the ring is not valuable. Uh, you're not going to get that anywhere else, but it just means the world to me. Uh, thank you so much. And off, off she goes. And then before you know it, uh, you know, in walks Brian Brushwood, who uh, uh, is, is about to get a Reese's uh, peanut butter cup when he goes, oh, what have we here? And of course, it's a ring. And uh, the, uh, you know, the obvious move is, you know, you're like, hey, I know the lady. She said she'll uh, you know, give a $500 reward for it. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, well, whatever, I'm going to go pawn it. You're like, no, don't do that. You'll make more. Fine. Look, let's just split the reward. And he's like, nah, I'm, 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 I'm Brian Brushwood. I got a show to go to. I'm not going to split no. And he's like, he's like, fine, look, here, I'll give you half the reward right now. Here's $250 and then I'll, and then I'll get the rest later on. And then, uh, and then of course, you know, uh, you never, you call the phone number and it never goes anywhere. So uh, the variations of the scam involve a extremely rare and valuable violin that is pawned by somebody who, you know, is, is down on his luck. And, uh, you know, you find someone else who discovers that it's a rare Stradivarius worth thousands of dollars. And the guy says, well, I can't sell it to you because it's, it's currently in Hawk. I'd lose my license. He's like, uh, all right, well then, you know, here's my number. I'll give you a bazillion dollars for it. And when the guy comes back to get his violin, that's when, again, that, that, the greed comes in and because he's operating under the false assumption that this violin is worth thousands of dollars that you find people suddenly willing to 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 do things i love those i love those scams are uh have pedigrees to them there's a um um darren uh, brown uh did a special with one of those scams an old scam where they have uh you call or you email today you would email uh like a thousand, a thousand people, like 2000 people. And you, and you just, uh, you pick whatever sport is popular in that culture. So if it's football, you tell everybody, uh, you tell half of the people in the, in the first pool of people that, uh, team A is going to win. You tell the other half team B is going to win. And then after the results come back, you keep track of everything. And so you only call back the people who you told would win correctly. And then you do the exact same thing again. And by the time you get to the last game, the Super Bowl or whatever it is, you have a pool of people who may not be very big, maybe a dozen people. But every one of those people has, so far, the entire season has received a phone call or an email from you with the exact right answer. With the You've predicted everything with 100% accuracy. So at the end of it, you then ask for money to tell them who's going to win that. And well, you, and the and funny you get your money and you leave. Yeah, yes, and and the funny part is that uh, you could even be wrong in that last one, and then you'll they'll still be on the hook because the problem is by the time they've decided to start giving you money, that has shut down the decision making part of their brain and instead engaged the justification part of their brain because right. now they've entered the clubhouse of people who who by their previous actions, you know, let's say let's say you know this one you were wrong on, they'll look at where they are. They're like, well, I gave this guy money. And I'm not a sucker. Therefore, it can't be a scam. 
So what it must be is that he was just wrong this one time. And then you you kick in the part of your brain that remembers the hits and forgets the misses. And and these guys can keep on going way beyond, you know, the eight times that they were right. They're they're on the hook forever. So why do we, so why do we fall for scams? Like what is the anatomy of falling for a scam like that? I, I would imagine, and again, this is way outside of my uh, field of, of scientific expertise, but I would imagine it's the same reason that we're afraid of snakes. I mean, how many people nowadays, you know, have anything to fear from snakes in, in their, their house? And I know a bunch of people right now are saying, like, I ran across a snake once, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. That, that doesn't explain the, the 99 times that you jumped at a twig on the floor thinking it was a snake. At some level, it's a, it's a biological heuristic that causes us to, to make a shortcut. And uh, the, the problem is that there are ways to take advantage of that. Now, we, we love it when we see the, for example, the illusion of, you know, movies, 24 frames a second, close enough to reality for me. You know, uh, you show me 24 still images in a row, make it kind of look like something's moving. And my brain's like, we'll fill in the gap and say like, yeah, no, whatever. That's, that's real life happening over there. Uh, it's delightful you know, when we get these cognitive moments of surprise, when we watch a close-up magician or talented stage magician, uh, it's not awesome when using those exact same mechanics, we have someone stand up on a stage, look America in the eye and say, I'm going to connect you to your dead grandfather. Mm -hmm. So from your, so in your world, what, what do you think about people like John Edwards, who seem to be like taking what is obviously, these are obviously you know, cold reading techniques and tricks that are, that are well known among magicians and, and doing weird, bad things with the, like, what is like to, it feels to me like, uh, astrologers, fortune tellers, psychics, palmistry, psychic surgery, uh, dowsers, all those people. And John Edwards, you know, all those kinds of people are taking what you do for as an entertainment, you know, thing and saying, and you're upfront and saying, I am going to trick you. And this is an illusion. And then they are somehow taking the, the same thing and pushing it into a place where people are less skeptical of it. Um, what is your thinking on that world? I, let me say two things that are directly in conflict with each other. First of all, I'm going to say that if, uh, if you use magic tricks, uh, to, you know, defraud people, into believing that you are doing anything supernatural, that you have any kind of gift that puts you above them. Uh, you're, 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 a, you're a terrible person, and, and I do not condone it at all. However, um, I also think, or strongly suspect, I, I can't know because I'm not in their world, but I strongly suspect that at some level, all of them believe they're doing the right thing. Now, I mm. think that most of them believe that they, you know, they know when they're using the trick method to get the stuff, but they're all making little side bets. And you hear this all the time. You hear this from, for example, uh, mentalism is a form of magic where you create the illusion of having psychic powers, whether it's predicting things, whether it's reading someone else's mind or whatever. Um, the, the effect that you want to simulate is that you are able, you know, you're, you're uh, freaking Professor X, right? But what happens is, is people do it enough and they, they, they tell themselves the narrative of, I think I really have this power. And then they'll make these little <laughs> side bets and they'll say, okay, look, I'm, I am going to use this tricky magic method to, you know, peek at what they wrote in advance. And that is, you know, how I'll conclude this performance. But, you know, secretly, I'm looking at this guy. I bet he said blank. And then sure enough, when he peeks, he looks and it says blank. And then at some level, some small level, they, they think, 
oh my God, I really do have the gift. Mm-hmm. And then they, uh, and then they go on to, you know, they finish the show and then, and then quietly, once they've established that foothold in their mind of, well, I know I'm psychic because of, you know, in the past 10 years, I can name a hundred times that I guessed the, the word before I peeked at it. Mm-hmm. So yes, mm-hmm. I will continue to use this secret peek as my method, but in my heart, I know I'm a real psychic. So what I'm doing is real psychic powers, which means what I must be doing is really a good thing. And uh, I, 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 think, I think that's true all the way up to John Edward. I think, I think when he, I think when, uh, you know, and, and there are allegations, you know, I, I'm not claiming anything, but the allegations are that, um, you know, he says he's so busy, he can't possibly get to your private reading for six months and for $5,000. Uh, and so they put you on the schedule you know, as a, as a magician, it seems to me like if I had a six month head start and five dollar <laughs> budget, there's an awful lot about you I could find out through private investigators. Uh, but I, I I think at the end of the day, I, I I don't even believe that he thinks he's a bad guy. I think that he believes that he really has a gift through all of those little cognitive tricks that that have tricked him into believing himself. Hmm. You know, uh, I'll I'll look it up and I'll add it to the show after we finished talking, but I, I remember there is, there was actually a psychologist who taught himself cold reading and uh, a couple of these other tricks. And he, um, in an effort to sort of try to understand how all this works psychologically. And i if I remember correctly, he fell into that exact same trap that he, that he started to believe that, Oh wait, I think actually this is real because he started to get it. So such good results from, I cold, totally from reading. Hey, dropping in here to tell you that the psychologist I'm talking about his name is Ray Hyman, R-A-Y-H-Y-M-A-N. He was a magician beforehand. Then he moved over into mentalism. Then he moved over into cold reading. And his cold readings were so successful that he started to believe he actually did have psychic powers. People were so moved and seemingly uh, helped by what he was doing that he believed that he actually was a true psychic. And um, he was doing this for a while. Then he went on to become a psychologist. And while he was in school to become a psychologist, he had a colleague, a former colleague, a mentalist named Stanley Jacks, tell him, look, here's how you sh- can show that you're not actually psychic. Next time you do one of these palm readings or cold readings, just tell people the opposite of what you think you're understanding or the opposite of what's popping in your head. Whatever it is you think you're receiving psych- psychically, tell them the opposite. He did that. People were just as amazed, just as moved, just as helped. And he realized what was happening there was the subjective validation, which is the psychological term for this thing. Subjective validation was working in both directions. It can fool both the person receiving the psychic reading and the person giving it. Okay, back to the interview. Well, think think about how our brains are built. Our brains are built, have evolved on purpose so that physical personal experience always trumps theoretical. Right. So, so if I tell you it is theoretically possible that this guy is a fraud and a charlatan, that will, that will make a wedge, you know, in your mind uh, as a disinterested third party. But if you are there and that freaking salt shaker moved of its own accord, it doesn't matter. It, it, physical personal experience trumps it. Right. Oh man. Okay. Look, I could talk about this forever. I've, I've kept you so much longer than I said. It would. <laughs> That's uh, um, you've got this, the, if, the scams Sasquatch is supernatural. There's a version of it out on YouTube. Everyone needs to go watch that. It's, it's so great. And you pull a lot of things together. There's some performance in it, but there's also just a ton of information. And, uh, even if you've, uh, are somewhat familiar with all of this, um, 
you should watch it because you'll you'll connect. There's some synthesis there that you have never seen before. And also, if if this is like an entry point for you, that is a really great entry point for all of this kind of uh, talking about stuff and thinking and this whole world of um, scams and magic and skepticism and biases and fallacies and weirdness. It's great. I really loved it. And you've got Scam School still going, hacking the system. What is coming up in the future for you? Man, that's a really good question. <laughs> we're uh, we're actually, I don't know, everything's rolling forward so quickly. We're trying to figure out what's next. So I got a bunch of, you know, uh, I, I'm, I I bought a new round of uh, lottery scratch-off tickets. So we'll see which <laughs> one of those pay off. If, if somebody wants to keep up with all things you, how do they do that? Uh, my name is Brian Brushwood, but the last six letters are S-H-W-O-O-D. So if you pretty much search that anywhere on Twitter. It's twitter.com, you know, slash wood, facebook.com slash wood, google.com slash plush wood. Uh, you should be able to follow me, but of course, uh, scam school is probably the safest bet to, uh, to always see what I'm up to. Man. Thanks so much for your time, man. This is so great. And, uh, I love your stuff. Thank you so much, dude. This is the best. I'm going to bring you cookies. <laughs> And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. You Are Not So Smart is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors for just one quarter of the cost. Of using a traditional advisor. Wealthfront monitors your account 24 7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after tax returns. Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who launched the Index Fund Revolution and who've written some of the most important books in finance. In case you're still not convinced, you should know that Wealthfront manages more than $2 billion in client assets and has saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. So with Wealthfront managing your investments, watching over them every day, what will you do with all your extra time? Visit Wealthfront.com slash so smart to get your first $10,000 managed for free. And here comes the disclaimer. Wealthfront Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FNRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there's the possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. Yes, you've got a Twitter account. You've got a Facebook account. You've got an Instagram. You're playing around with Tumblr. There's all sorts of ways to have a presence on the internet, but you really do need to have a website, a place that's just yours. You've staked a claim on the internet and you can point to all that other stuff. You can put a blog on there. You can do whatever you want, but you need a place where if someone types your name into Google, there is this one thing that's going to come up that is just yours. You're not beholden to anyone else. And if you're going to make a website, how are you going to do that? I recommend Squarespace. Squarespace is perfect whether or not you know anything about coding or design or you even can use Photoshop, it is so simple and easy to use. And if you do know how to do that stuff, you can make something incredible with it in a way that the other platforms are just not great at doing, at least not in an easy, easy way. I've tried other stuff. I've used all sorts of different um, 
competitors and I've used all sorts of different alternatives, but I really love the simplicity, the ease of use, and especially the support that comes from Squarespace. If you want a site that looks professionally designed, regardless of your skill level, no coding required, intuitive, easy to use tools, Squarespace has the technology to power your site and to ensure security and stability. Trusted by millions of people already and some of the most respected brands in the world, you can get going at just $8 a month and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Who signs up for a a website for one month? Of course, you're going to get at least a year. So you get a free domain name and it starts at $8 a month. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code SOSMART to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now, back to the show. On each episode, before I eat a cookie, I read a bit of self-delusion news or catch you up on some of the latest research. And since this episode is all about scams, I thought I'd tell you about one of my favorite bits of research into scams themselves, the psychological research conducted by Cormac Hurley at Microsoft a few years back. The name of the paper is Why Do Nigerian Scammers Say They Are From Nigeria? You can find it for free online, but uh, I'll have a link for it at the website also if you want to go click on it instead of remembering all that. Now, the full paper is full of very, very academic language and lots of technical jargon. So if you'd like to read a well-translated breakdown of it, I recommend an article by psychologists Christopher Chabri and Daniel Simons. Yes, I talk about them all the time when they've been on the show. They're great guys. Uh, They wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal under the title, Why We Should Scam the Scammers. So here's, here's what happens, okay? Hurley at Microsoft found in his analysis using something called signal detection theory, that if you want to create a successful email scam, it needs to be super ridiculous and very obviously fake. The idea is to send out as many emails as possible, blanketing just about everyone out there with a computer and an internet connection with your pitch, saying something like, I'm a Nigerian prince, I've been displaced, I have a bunch of money in the bank, but I can't get to it. If you give me your bank info... I can transfer it over and leave you a million dollars for your troubles after I take out, you know, my whatever gazillion dollars that I'm putting in there for a minute. Now, obviously, most people will see something like this and see right through it. And what Hurley found was that this is exactly what the scammer is counting on. Since they're sending out millions and millions of emails, it would be tremendously counterproductive for them to hook someone early on just for that person to turn out to be savvy enough or smart enough to catch on down the line. According to Hurley, Simons, and Chabri, it takes about six months of emails after that first contact to slowly reel someone in for the actual exchange. So it would be impossible to run a successful scam if your emails were so good that you got thousands of replies early on from people who just are not going to commit after six months of seduction. So... You can't waste all that time if you want to run a successful operation. So to minimize their efforts, they instead, they, they make their emails just silly enough that most people will delete them right away. And only the most gullible people, the most easily fooled people will actually reply to that very first one. And these are the sort of people who won't get cold feet way down the line or, or ever get 
suspicious at all about what might be going on. Now, that might only be a fraction of a single percentage point of all the people they contact, but that's all it takes, just a few people a year. And by making their emails obvious scams, they can make it much, much easier to locate the perfect targets in their pool of potential targets. And this is true for all email scams, not just the Nigerian Prince versions, but also the ones that try to get your passwords and all the other ones. They all work pretty much the same way. They're stupid and ridiculous and obvious. And the reason for it is because this is a feature of blanketing a large pool of potentials so that you only get, you can sort out. It's a sorting mechanism for finding just those specific people who are most likely to fall for a scam after six months of work. If you'd like to learn more, you can read Why We Should Scam the Scammers at WSJ.com or read the paper by Hurley, which is available for free at research.microsoft.com. Now, what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, uh, who cares about other things? C is for cookie. On each That's episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, C I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. If we cook and bake and eat and enjoy and talk about your cookie on an episode, you will get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book sent straight to your door. Now, this episode... We're going to eat a cookie sent in by Jonathan Whitaker. Jonathan is from Zimbabwe and says this is a popular recipe from where he's, he's from. And it has some ingredients that he was kind of worried that we wouldn't be able to find. But no, we found everything that you talked about in the email. And they're really, really easy to make as compared to the last episodes. They're super easy. It's margarine and vanilla essence, sugar, dates, Marie biscuits, which are sort of a tea biscuit dunking thing. And you sort of crush all that up and, you know, crush it up in a blender, melt everything together, and you just mush it up, bring some of it to a boil, and you just put it into the refrigerator and let it sit. Now, we then took it out of the refrigerator and cooked it a little bit so that they would harden up because right out of the refrigerator, they seem to be sort of like fudge. But here's what he says in the email. Been listening to the show for a year, fascinated by psychology. Uh, he loved the audio clip from the episode that was distorted, uh, the Constitution Center's on the next stop. And uh, he talks all about that and said it was just something that blew his mind so much he had to send in a cookie recipe, and I appreciate it. They're called Date Fingers, and we're going to try it right now. Here we go. Mmm. Oh, <laughs> that's just delicious. That's so good. It's so it's, it's uncomplicated. It sort of tastes like um, butter fudge. Very fudgy, but not chocolate. Almost all butter. Nutty, buttery. The very hint of that date taste. That sort of um, which is sort of a nutty, you know, jelly fruit taste. And it's just uh, it's fudgy. And consistency, but super, super buttery. It's almost not a cookie. I don't know what you would say it is. It's, it's a confection. This is a, definitely a candy more than it is a cookie. I could not ask for a better introduction to Zimbabwe's culture than this date finger. Thank you so much, um, Mr. Whitaker. This is super, super delicious, and it's too much. I couldn't imagine having more than like 
two of these in one like tasting. But you're right. I want I want to drink tea immediately, and I also want to know what other candies are available from Zimbabwe. Send me more. Anyone listening from Mozambique, Zimbabwe, or any of the surrounding countries, I want your cookies. And if this is any indication of what you have to offer from that portion of our planet, I am in all the way. If you want to know how to make these cookies, just go to youarenotsosmart.com. We'll post the recipe there. We'll also post it on our Pinterest page. And uh, I'll put a picture up and the whole thing is just, mm, I love it. Nice, simple. This actually is something that I can imagine putting into my uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas repertoire. So thank you very much, uh, Jonathan Whitaker. The book is on its way. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one and head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all the previous episodes of this podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com. Show notes are always there for every single episode. And you can learn more about both of my books there as well. Send your cookie recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I bake your cookie, I will send you a signed copy of the book. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. On Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog. I'm at David McRaney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The interstitial music in this episode was by Broken Birthday and Banjo Apocalypse. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy.